Welcome back to one-on-one -on -one New York's longest running sports call-in show. I'm Sam Davis here with Alex Wolves. Happy to be joined by a very special guest, a sports writer for ESPN.com covering the NBA, a New York Times bestselling author, host of the Hoop Collective podcast. The list just keeps on going. Ryan Windhorst is here with us. He joins us from Tokyo, Japan, site of the Summer Olympic Games, of course. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us today. How's Tokyo? You know, it's um, it's kind of a bizarre situation. I'm not I'm in Japan, but not really in Japan because um, I'm in quarantine right now. And um, I'm even when I'm cleared of quarantine, I'm gonna kind of be quasi in quarantine. I only allowed I'm allowed to go to the hotel, the basketball arena, or the golf course. I'm gonna cover the golf and um, little studio that we have here. Um, that's it. No restaurants. No public transportation. No barbershop no anything you can't really leave and so you're not you're kind of in Japan out the window so to speak and um that's we all knew that that was the way it was going to be when we came at least for 14 days after that or let's move around a little bit but um the Japanese <clears throat> don't really want us here um and you feel that for sure it's not rude but it's not welcoming at all and uh, ultimately at the end of the day uh in between the four lines that won't matter and so um, that's what we're here to do, but it is, you know, a lot of people when they heard I was going to the Olympics sort of defaulted to what the idea of the Olympics are, and that is that is not what we have going on uh, here this year in Japan. Well, since you said that, I just want to jump right off that with, of course, there's been quite a lot of criticism, like you mentioned, over even having these Olympics with the state of emergency in Tokyo and everything going on with COVID-19, so there's already been things affected by the USA basketball team. Do you think there's going to be any more issues with that or kind of just, I guess, describe any sort of precautions that the team is taking or just in general, the athletes have been taking? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, in the last week, I've had six COVID tests, six, uh, and I am vaccinated. And the Japanese still look at me with a side eye. Like, um, you know, I don't know about you. And so I think that is an issue for the athletes. Um, you know, they are coming over here to be there to do their craft. And, um, uh, um, you know, they're not really able to maybe do, do things the way they want to do them. And but I'm going to have to say, I'm going to say, you know, there was a lot of people uh, in my life who were, who were really worried. They were like, oh my gosh, going over to Tokyo, rising cases. Guys, this is not, you know, perspective is needed. There is what is going on in Las Vegas, which is where I was for the 10 days prior to this, is way more mm. uh, out of control than what's happening in Las Vegas or that was happening in Tokyo. Um, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, the case counts in Tokyo are going up. Well, the case counts aren't going up like they are in my home where I live in Omaha, Nebraska, by percentage, I'll tell you that. So, um, I think it's very much like, I, I, I mean, there's, we, we don't have the ability to make any predictions and you know that there is going to be, um, you know that there is going to be people in the, um, uh, you know, in the Olympics who test positive and are knocked out and maybe there'll be high profile athletes. Maybe there'll be um, sort of athletes we'll never hear about again. You know, the, the Czech Republic had an outbreak amongst their, um, their delegation and they've had a number of athletes, you know, no athletes you will ever remember unless you're from the Czech Republic. Um, that's gonna happen. Uh, but um, I do think like or the Orlando bubble last year, when people got there, there was a, 
a number of positive tests. And then once the bubble was established, it pretty much stayed tight. I don't think it'll be the same here because the bubble isn't as perfect, but I do think that, they, that this will work. I think the concept is a, is a good concept and a proven concept. So thank you for sharing a lot of that stuff about the logistics, because I think it's all really interesting. And something that you mentioned in previously that I thought was, was interesting as well was about how none of that kind of affects what's going on you know, between those four lines. And you talk about Team USA and kind of the struggles that they dealt with before with the exhibition losses and now coming in with all of this you know, outside noise, still trying to get that goal done of getting that gold medal. What, how would you describe kind of what you've seen as the team mindset as they head on this quest here to get that gold with everything going on? Well, their situation is preposterous. I mean, they, you know, they have 12 guys and they lost two of them before they even um, left. And then another two were in contact tracing. So um, they had eight guys fly over um, and, or, um, you know, three were in the finals too. So they, had, they by the end of it, they had eight, they had eight players on their plane over here. Um, they had six practices. Um, and one of the reasons that Team USA got in trouble in the early 2000s was because they had no cohesion, no way to, to, to get year over year. So one of the things that they did was they said, we're going to have a, a program where the players get together every single summer, or at least three out of four summers, even if it's just for a week, we were, where we have some cohesion and we remind you, um, you know, what international basketball is. And the 2008 team, for example, that um, the Redeem team, um, they were together for the most part, the same team in 2006 summer, 2007 summer, 2008 summer. Um, the 2012 team in 2010, they won, uh, the most of those guys won uh, the world championships in Turkey. Um, and this, and the process was going on in 2018, Greg Popovich's first summer in charge, they had a week long training camp. Uh, in Las Vegas, 2019, they had the World Cup, but then 2020 happened, and that World Cup team was so devoid of stars that really there hasn't been a true Team USA since 2016. So we've done five years without it. So if these guys had played together, or at least you know seven or eight of them had played together in 2019 and 20, you know it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But these guys just have no history to fall back on. And so their margin for error is going to be smaller than other teams. And, um, and so that's a, that's going to be a real issue. Uh, but as I point that out, I have to say they are far and away the most talented team here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think for a lot of people, they're looking at this Olympics, like, what is this Olympics going to be like? Is it, is the story of this Olympics, the empty um, stadiums? Is the story of this Olympics, who tests positive, who's not going to win, who gets knocked out. For the U.S. basketball team, the story, the story is the same. You are expected to win. Yeah. And even with the challenges that they've had, um, they will have all 12 players, supposedly. There are, some of the guys aren't here yet, but they're supposed to be. Um, and they're going to be healthy. And the expectation is that they're going to win. And I, I think that's a fair expectation. You mentioned, just like you said, the expectations are to win and to win gold, really, for Team USA. And that's kind of why the first two exhibition games and those losses to Nigeria and Australia came as a big shock, at least to American fans watching. Kind of what happened in those games, and do you think any of that will roll over into uh, the regular regular Olympic Games as they start regular play? Yeah, so against uh, Nigeria, they just had, and really Australia too, but against Nigeria especially, you could just tell they had no rhythm. They really just didn't know 
where to go on offense. Um, and these guys are all great players. And so when they don't know what to do offensively, they tend to just stop playing team basketball and play one-on-one -on -one basketball. I mean, this is um, something that they've done their whole lives probably. That's what happened in that game. And they were just not able to keep up with the Nigerians uh, scoring because the Nigerians have good athletes. And, um, and I have to say, uh, I'm feeling my age a little bit here because I first started covering Team USA 15 years ago yeah. uh, here in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, so I covered the game um, that they played against Greece, which uh, Mike Krzyzewski was 75 and one as a Team USA coach. That loss was against Greece. I was at the game. I was also with them in China in 2019 when they finished seventh and lost two games. Um, and so I was there for the two games in Las Vegas. So I've seen them lose five. They've lost six times or something like that in uh, 15 years. I've been at five of them. Wow. Um, I can tell you all five of those losses that I was at, they probably win if it's a 48 minute game. People focus on the difference between um, Olympics and or you know international basketball and NBA basketball. And the first thing they say is, well, you're allowed to knock the ball off the rim. You're, there's no defensive three seconds. There's a lot of zone. The officials let, you know, teams get away with murder, et cetera. That's all true. But the real big difference is the 40 minute game In a 40 minute game. You, you know, and obviously college is 40 minute games. It's not like these guys never played 40 minute games, but the, 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 you know, you can have a bad five minutes and that can cost you. Yeah. Um, one team can get super hot for five minutes. It can cost them. It's not this, you don't have the grace period of the NBA where, you know, the longer anything is, the more talent's going to win out. You know, if you played, if all these were three game series, I would be stunned if the team USA lost ever. If they were all seven game series, I would be surprised if any series even got to six games or, you know, seven. And so you play, you know, a 58 minute game, they're going to win easily. You play a 16 minute game, they're going to have more trouble. So, the 40-minute game is a massive difference. And in both the games that they played against Australia and Nigeria, if it's 48 minutes, they win. But 40 minutes, they didn't. And, um, and also their size, their lack of size. Um, they really went for a team that was big on shooting and versatility. Um, in China two years ago, they were afraid of Nikola Jokic and the Serbians. I'm not afraid. They were preparing for Nikola Jokic and the Serb Serbians. Um, the Serbians have three seven footers um, and they were definitely the biggest contenders. And so they brought three traditional centers, Miles Turner, Brooke Lopez and Mason Plumley, to defend the Serbians. And this team ended up being sort of slow and, uh, and not great from shooting on the outside. So they, they wanted a more versatile team. So they picked centers like uh, Bam Adebayo, Draymond Green and Kevin Love, guys who can play inside and out different positions. And, you know, that lack of size showed up. It showed up against the, uh, against the Australians. The Australians in 40 minutes had 22 baskets in the paint. Mm. Um, so people were wondering, well, why would you not pick Trey Young? When, when they had an open spot, it was like, Trey Young, Trey Young's awesome. Trey Young is awesome. But they needed a guy who could defend the rim a little bit, who was athletic. And they needed the guy to be American, which – Go take a look down the list at the great centers in the NBA. A lot of them are not American. Uh, Joel Embiid is not American. DeAndre Ayton is not American. Uh, obviously, Jokic is not American. Uh, Yusef Nurkic is not American. I can keep going. Um, Rudy Gobert is not American. And people have brought up Carl Anthony Towns. Well, Carl Anthony Towns, when he was in high school, 
play for the Dominican national team, his heritage. And that means he can't play for the Americans. So you take him off the board. So not only did they need an American big, they needed an American big man who was in shape. I know like there was a couple of guys that they called and the guys have been on vacation, <laughs> um, you know, and like they, like they needed the guy in 48 hours to report to Las Vegas and then another 24 hours go to Japan. And there wasn't a lot of guys who were available. And um, so was JaVale the absolute best choice? I don't know, but JaVale played with Durant and, and Draymond Green before and that got him there. But the reason they picked him is because they were getting beat up inside and they need somebody, if that happens again, who can get in there and defend the rim a little bit. And that's why they went with JaVale. So um, those are their weaknesses, but they do have a lot of strengths. Um, uh, but uh, they're going to get tested right away because their first the game is against France. And France is, uh, you know, has a lot of success uh, against the U.S. in 2019 and has a lot of NBA players. Um, so um, it'll be a challenge, but, you know, but if they play to their potential, they should win. And we'll see how that all plays out. And I want to talk about now what we've saw in the NBA finals, because you talk about the three of the players that are going from the finals to Tokyo had a big impact, obviously, in that series as the Bucks take it in six. I'm just curious. This was you kind of described it as an unpredictable end to an unpredictable season. When you think about the Bucks lifting that trophy at the end of it, what's your first thing that comes to mind and just what you have to say about that team and what you saw? Well, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful NBA story. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, it's a mid-market team that, uh, you know, the core of that team, which are Middleton and, uh, and Giannis, they grew. And they didn't draft Middleton. They got him, I think, after his first or second year. But essentially, they grew Middleton. They grew Giannis. They kept their team together. Um, you know, not that I have a problem with so-called super teams. I mean, I'm, I'm all for, you know, for that kind of star power. But um, seeing Giannis develop, have struggles, stick with it, commit to the team, seeing them go for it when they, when they, they knew that they had their window with Giannis, so they went for it. Um, it's really kind of great team building. And um, yeah, they benefited from some fortune. Um, every single team that's ever won the championship has benefited from some fortune, whether it was getting the right lottery pick, being located in the right city, another injury or, or circumstance, every team has done that. Um, and, uh, but I just, I just like the whole, I just like the way to play it out. I loved watching the Suns play too. The Suns are a great team. I love the way that they played. I just, I had a lot of fun watching these two teams because both of them represented like team building and you go back and look I know the Suns left from out of the playoffs to the finals it's unusual but if you go back and look you see all the moves that they made moving up in the draft to get Miles Bridges going out and getting Jay Crowder picking up uh, Cameron Payne uh, moving up in the draft um, or moving around in the draft you know uh, for other players uh, getting Dario Saric I mean I really liked watching how these teams were built they were not built in one summer through free agency. And so um, I think it represented sort of a throwback to old, older school, which is not really that old, but the way NBA teams used to be built. And I'm not saying that we have to go that way every year, but I enjoyed it this year. And um, I also have always believed that Giannis had the capability to grab a series by the neck and take it down. And um, in game two of that series, even though they lost it, um, when he realized his knee was okay, he grabbed the series and he took it down and um the bucks do not have the most talent uh that's probably the nets in the eastern conference but if you think that now that he's discovered he can do this that Giannis is not going to be doing this more it won't be every year 
but Giannis has now seen his ability. Uh, he is he is now a beast who is aware. Uh, it reminds me of LeBron, a beast who became aware and um, raffled off eight straight finals because there were times where he's just like, I'm not going to let us lose. Uh, Giannis has that type of capability. We've seen it. And so um, we're going to see it more. And I, I just really enjoyed us all going along the journey with him to watch it happen. Here with Brian Windhorst, ESPN NBA analyst and writer. Brian, you kind of alluded to super teams. You kind of alluded to a question I was going to ask about kind of the Bucks' future and whether this is a sustainable thing, because a lot of people have mentioned how, like they, like you said, they did benefit from a couple breaks, whether that be injuries from the Nets or from the Lakers, to kind of get to where they were and be that mid-market team that can overcome all that and win a finals. Is that going to be a trend that continues, or do you think these these big market teams like the Nets, for example, that we talk about a lot, or the Lakers come back and kind of challenge this Bucks team? What do you think the future is for this Bucks team? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the talent that the Nets have, you have to think that if they stay healthy, that they're going to be very hard to beat four out of seven. So obviously, if I was projecting the short-term future of the East, I would say the Nets are going to be very formidable. Um, the Bucks' great advantage is that they have all three of those guys signed. They're all in their 20s. Um, there's no reason why, I mean, short, short of health issues, there's no reason why they shouldn't remain very potent if those guys are healthy. And they didn't even have one of their good young players, Dante DiVincenzo, who, you know, will be a nice addition when he comes back. And they got some, they have some, some uh, work to do. They have to um, try to keep Bobby Portis. That's not going to be easy. Um, and they have to continue to work on the edges, but um, they have a, a championship core that's, that's, that's relatively young under contract. So that's what every team dreams of. So, I, I mean, I absolutely see them. Uh, being title contenders. I mean, a lot of things have to fall right for you to win. Um, they may not win uh, another one, but, you know, it doesn't mean that they won't be right there for the next three, four years. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to see is uh, the, the, the impact that Chris Paul had on the Suns, some teams that are sort of in that middle are going to quest for that one difference-making veteran. And there's a couple of guys out there who could fit the bill. I mean, I, who knows there, you know, there, there's maybe not another setup that will, will enable a team to jump like that. But, you know, Kyle Lowry is a free agent. Michael Conley is a free agent. Um, Chris Paul is potentially a free agent. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if some of those teams that are, that are where the Suns were look to try to replicate what the Suns did. It's, it's difficult to replicate what the Bucks did because you can't find many Giannis's. Um, but what the Suns did, I think, will – have an impact and um you know the, the other thing is you know the lakers were you know one of the top two or three best teams in the league this year before lebron and ad got hurt and so yes i think they they intend to change up their makeup of their team a little bit but let's not forget that that team wasn't like they failed and collapsed um when they're back healthy even though lebron is older uh, i still think they're gonna be very formidable you mentioned some of the names that are on the market this offseason. You mentioned some of the contenders. And I wanted to ask you about one specifically, Damian Lillard, because he's obviously been the conversation of the NBA Finals in some senses now, the still conversation on Team USA. Where do you think his situation sits right now? You know, he shot down the trade demands, but also made it clear that he isn't entirely happy with the situation in Portland. Where do you think that domino kind of falls this offseason and what type of impact that might have uh, moving forward? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a classic situation where Dame is uh, trying to hold the Bucks' feet to the fire. Um, because he sat there and watched 
uh, the Bucks go all in to get Drew Holiday and PJ Tucker. That's another guy, by the way, Milwaukee's got to try to resign. Yeah. But he watched um, the Bucks go all in, like go get Drew Holiday, go trade all that stuff to get Drew Holiday, take advantage of the guys you've got in your prime and go for it. He sees the Suns go all in for, you know, for Chris Paul. He sees, you know, the year before the Lakers go all in for Anthony Davis. Um, you know, and I think he's like, well, when are we going all in? Let's go. And that's, it's easy to say, go all in, you know, who, what are you going to do? Um, and I think from the Blazers standpoint, I think the Blazers are like, well, look, if we're going to go all in, you got to be with us. You know, you, you know, we can't go out there and make trades and, and do stuff like that. And then you're sitting on the fence. You've got to, you know, you're under contract for four years. We, we got to know that you're, you're with us. And he has been with them. You know, it's not like, um, I'm saying that Dame owes them that, but if they're in, they're, they're in their shoes, they're a little bit, you know, they're a little bit worried about it. And so um, it seems like there's a couple of people sitting on the fence, the Blazers sitting on the fence and Dame sitting on the fence. And so um, I think to, for it to be a healthy situation, I think there has to be some big decisions made, like this is the way we're going to do it. And that may mean Dame saying, okay, just, just trade me, but he hasn't gotten there yet. He's certainly danced around it, but he hasn't gotten there yet. Hmm. The Blazers haven't gotten to the place where they're like, okay, we're, we're going to offer everything for these players. I mean, maybe they're in the process of doing that, but I have not heard that. So with two guys sitting on the fence sort of eyeing each other, you're going to end up with middling results. And they've been middling the last few years. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're middling again, if they don't you know, choose a path right out here. And this is a, a big couple of weeks for the Blazers for sure. This is one-on-one -on -one here with Brian Windhorst from ESPN. Sticking with free agency, looking at the landscape kind of this offseason, could you, what are some kind of big names that you could see potentially being on the move or even some guys that you could, you could see relocating and being on new teams starting next season? Yeah, so there's not a whole, a, a lot of the big names in free agency signed contract extensions. So they're really the only big free agent name. I mean, you have, a you know, Chris Paul is obviously a big name, um, uh, but, um, you know, Kawhi Leonard, who's probably going to be out for next year. But I think the big thing is to watch the extensions. So there's a number of high-profile players who have one year left on their contracts. And if they – are they going to be – I mean, almost all of them, I would assume, are going to be offered contract extensions. And if they sign them, no problem. If they don't sign them, it sends a message that there may be something going on and their team might have to do something. So – watching the extensions play out. And that may not be something that plays out instantly in the first week of August. It may, it may actually play out that way. But if you look at a guy like Steph Curry, now we all assume he's going to sign long-term and be, remain committed and be a warrior. And that may be happening. And that may happen when they forget about it. But if he doesn't, there's going to be a lot of interest there. You have Bradley Beal, one year left on his contract. Will he extend? If he doesn't extend, what will the Wizards do? Will they play it out and roll the dice? Or will they look to trade him? Um, you have Jimmy Butler, one year left on his contract. Does he extend uh, or is he unhappy about not getting his extension? And he starts rattling the cage like he did um, in, uh, in Minnesota. You have Zach Levine, one year left on his contract. Um, really not, his contract terms are not favorable for an extension. If he doesn't extend, is that something the Bulls have to be worried about? Um, and there's, there's even a few more you can go down the list on um, where this becomes like, you know, Will the, the extensions or lack thereof uh, cause, cause transactions? So that's what we're going to be watching very closely, those types of players. Of course, Dane, he's got four years left. 
We'll see if he makes any move. But those guys who have big extension decisions, that those guys are going to affect um, the direction of the league is probably going to go. And then you have, like I said, Dame Lillard, and then maybe even Ben Simmons um, as a wild card in there. We've talked about a lot of names, and the one I wanted to ask you about, Brian, before we let you go, is about LeBron James. And this was something that I was so curious about when we had you on the show here. Is just in terms of you've spent so much time, you know, covering LeBron from St. Vincent, St. Mary, and going to the same high school and becoming a Cavs beat reporter that same year that he enters the NBA. You kind of leave Cleveland at the same time as him, and now you co-author many books on James, including the latest one on you know making of a billionaire, which we find out now he crossed that threshold very recently. With, with Space Jam 2. And I'm just so curious, Brian, you know, if we take a step back kind of what your overall takeaway has been since first covering the NBA and covering LeBron all the way back in high school to now kind of seeing the, the progression sense and into where we are now finding out that he is that billionaire athlete as you foretold a year ago now. You know, I think the thing with LeBron that when I look back is that I um, am really re- remark on is his, uh, his sense of perspective. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you're, when you're that, uh, when you're that hyped and there's that much attention on you, it can, and I, not just when he is in high school, but even his first, you know, seven or eight years in the NBA, it can be very easy. And the media falls into this every day. And I've fallen into it many times of looking right at here, what's in front of your face and evaluating right to what's in front of your face. And making judgments and decisions and everything like that based on the immediate. Um, What LeBron has always been able to do, which is something that people learn when they get older, but that he had when he was 18 years old, is his ability to see the whole field. It's the same, you know, in in its concept, the same ability that allows him to be such a, a great playmaker and passer because he can foresee and predict and, and watch things develop and, and take advantage of them. You know, um, I just go back to when he's 18 years old. I, I really don't think it's very hard, even as much as I've studied it and talked to all the people, it's, it's hard to comprehend. I mean, you have to understand that he grew up in poverty. Um, his mother was um, living in government-assisted housing. Uh, I think she was paying like $80 a month or I don't know, a couple hundred dollars a month in rent so that they could have this house and the government was paying the rest. And I know that he had been getting some stuff like he, you know, his mom got a loan for a car. So he had a Hummer and he, you know, he had all all the gear and all the shoes that he could ever want. Um, But when he goes to Adidas after school, I want to, I want to point this out. He goes to school on a Thursday in April. Now, granted it's his senior year. He's probably got senioritis, but he's still, you know, he went to history class and government and whatever. And then he leaves the school and and a limo picks him up. And they take him to the airport. He gets on a private jet. And the private jet takes him to Boston to Reebok. And he goes in there and Reebok's play that night is to pull out a check for $10 million um, and say, if you, if you sign with us right now, you can have this check. This check is a cashier's check. It is your money, $10 million in your bank account. When you go to the bank tomorrow, it will, it will be in your account within a, a minute's and you will have $10 million. And for someone who was, went through him, the con, and you know, and it was really, it's what music uh, record companies did for years with young artists. You know, they showed him a, a suitcase full of money 
and then got him to sign a record contract that was not favorable. Now that's not, I mean, I'm not saying Adidas was trying to sign him to, or uh, Reebok was trying to sign him to a, a sham contract. They were, they were offering him hundred million, but it's the same concept. Show this kid who's had nothing, the cash and get him into, you know, by the way, the deal was he had to sign that day. He couldn't go to Nike. He couldn't go to uh, Adidas. And that he was able to say no, that he, I mean, and they did a whole thing. Like they, presented the check and in fact they gave it to his mom first so he he could see his mom holding a 10 million dollar check and you know of course he knew he was going to be a millionaire um it wasn't like uh he was he was worried about ever making the rent again but there it was you know all of those days that he was working and he knew he was going to be a millionaire and, he, and this was the moment and um he had to go to school the next day he was he flew back on this jet and went to school and he said no to that and while there have been many other things in his career that have been presented to him, probably way bigger as potentially he said no to, the ability for him at age 18 years old to have the understanding to not take that deal because there could, if this is just the first deal, there will be others and better. And so when he's had bad moments, tough losses, setback seasons, he's always had that perspective of there will be op there will be more opportunities. Um, one of the things that I've most admired about LeBron is his ability to take a loss. I mean, nobody has taken at the highest level, almost nobody has taken as many losses as he has. I mean, this guy has lost so many finals, so many finals games. Um, you know, when you talk to Jerry West about LeBron, you know, Jerry West went one and nine in the finals. He happened to be in the league when the Boston Celtics were just awesome. And um, when you see Jerry West talk about LeBron, he has such incredible reverence. And you can see on his face that he, when he's talking about it, he's going through what he, what Jerry went through in the sixties where he was called a loser because he couldn't win the finals, but he wasn't a loser, right? I mean, he was one of the best players ever. <clears throat> and, um, and so LeBron's ability to have perspective to understand the big picture and make decisions based on that. By the way, it doesn't mean he's always right. Um, you know, he's made mistakes, but that has been a driving force in his career and one of the most amazing things. And really, if there's a life lesson that LeBron could teach people <clears throat> that you could relate, you know, I would say to people, it's, it's, it is about taking a loss. Um, that, um, you know, in any of our careers or in any of our lives, there's gonna be moments where you just take it right on the chin. And maybe it's only you who knows it. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your class. Maybe it's all the fans in, in a high school stands or a college, um, you know, but you're going to take a loss. And he is, he kept coming back every year. He comes back, comes back, comes back, comes back. And like, sometimes he's like, listen, I'm going to go try a new team. But you never saw him ever say, I just took this on the chin and I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep going. He's always done that. So, um, and all the way back and, you know, and the same, like another thing that happened, like um, when he was, when he was in high school, you know, he, he got banned for two games for taking free jerseys. Oh. Um, you know, here was this kid again from nothing living in government assisted housing. They're holding these games at, at uh, college and NBA arenas because there's such a demand for tickets, right? 
and um, he's generating like the games are on pay-per-view. He's generating like hundreds of thousands of dollars in aggregate. It probably was millions, but definitely hundreds of thousands of dollars. And a bunch of old white guys say, you took two free jerseys. Well, it says right here in this here book, you can't do it. And he had, a, you know, he was obviously upset by it, but he had a good nature all the way through. You know, I, I, like one of the great moments I remember of his senior year, you know, they were, they were investigating, you know, where, 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 how could you possibly get this money to buy this $100,000 car? How could you possibly get it? Um, and, you know, how dare you? How dare you uh, go get this $100,000 car? Uh, oh, by the way, our, uh, our, the deal that we have with the TV partners for the state tournament, that's several hundred thousand. I mean, that's, we get that. But you, how dare you get a $100,000 car from a bank who was like, you mean we can start doing business with LeBron and get both? What do you want? You want, you want a $10 million loan? How about a $50 million loan? What, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a guy who wasn't short-sighted, the banker who gave the loan, right? And while they're doing the investigation, oh my God, did somebody give him a, a, a benefit that, that would potentially spoil his amateur status? Hey, did we sell that pay-per-view game yet? Okay, get on that. Make sure we get double bids. And, um, and uh, he, he, I remember he brought out pregame before the game, he had a little uh, remote control Hummer and he was out there driving it around the court, which was his way of saying, screw you, <laughs> screw you. Who are you to say this? And for a 17 year old or whatever he was, 17 or 18, to have authority coming down on him saying, no, 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 for him to like, by the way, he didn't spray paint somebody's house. He didn't, you know, uh, get busted with the, uh, you know, three pounds of heroin, you know, he, he wasn't doing grand larceny, um, you know, he, you know, and that was the thing, like he was being treated like he had some criminal. And so he had the perspective to know how ridiculous it was, you know, and of course, everybody's like, oh my, I mean, it's on SportsCenter, LeBron James eligibility is in question. He's like, eligibility, what are you guys talking about? And so from that, and, and, and that, I mean, now it's kind of laughable, the guy's got you know, a billion dollars and he's, he's putting Hollywood movies out winning championships and all this stuff. But it's the same principles that he saw then that he's carried on to his life. And where does that come from? I don't know where it came from. It didn't come from having some sort of incredible influence because while his mother was a constant in his life, she was not a steadying hand. He certainly didn't like learn those things from his mother. He did have some role models in his life, but nobody who took him in, like, like, where did he get that from? I don't know. But when people talk about having special talent, him having special talent, yes, his incredible talent. Yes. His frame, I mean, was, you know, his genetics to produce that body is amazing. But the guy's perspective and ability to see his awareness, I would almost argue that that's his greatest trait, because there's there's a lot of great athletes um, uh, who, who don't handle things the way he does. Amazing perspective on one of the greatest athletes, certainly of our generation, LeBron James. ESPN writer, Brian Windhorst, thank you so much for taking the time from Tokyo to join us. We're gonna be right back here on One-on-One, -on -one, New York's longest running sports call-in show. Stick around. <laughs> 